BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. A few weeks ago, on a rainy Friday night, I found myself in Coney Island, about to judge a very unusual pageant alongside a motley crew of judges, including photographer Nicholas Heller, aka New York Nico, performance artist Reverend Jen Miller, and internet sensation Maxine the Fluffy Corgi, and her owner Brian. Coney Island USA's Seashore Theater is normally the home of the Coney Island Circus Sideshow, with its acrobats, fire eaters, and sword swallowers. But on this night, we were there to judge some more unexpected acts in celebration of the New York City subway system. The host for the evening was burlesque star and reigning Miss Coney Island, Maggie McMuffin, besashed with bubblegum pink highlights and a glittery dress with silver fringe. But we love trash here, we love trash. I mean, what would our fine Coney Island beaches be without trash? Safer, perhaps? Cleaner? I don't like either of those words. Yes, this was heavily influenced by the nature of Coney Island itself. The contestants ranged from dancers and drag queens to poets and even a dog act. But this show was honoring a tradition which began in 1941, paying tribute to the New York City subway system and the extraordinary women who rode those trains every single day. I went with my mother from Queens into Manhattan on the subways and of course recognized that my poster was all over in every car and people did recognize me and we would go into Manhattan with gloves, dressed up at the time, nothing like you see today. You know, it was a whole event going into Penhat and bring your 17. This is a tribute to the dozens of women and high school girls who greeted millions of New Yorkers every single day, their smiles beaming from every subway car. The Bowery Boys episode 411, Ms. Subways, Queens of the New York Commute. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom is away for this show, so I am doing something wacky. In this show, we'll be celebrating the New York City subway, or rather celebrating those who celebrate the subway system. Not an easy task these days, just as there are many things about the modern subway to really marvel at, such as a new model of high-tech subway car, 
which debuted this year in May of 2023, there are just as many things about the experience of writing to legitimately criticize, including safety and rising costs. But we've been here before, many times in fact, since that first underground train left the station at City Hall on October 27, 1904. The system is a behemoth, with 472 stations linked by hundreds of miles of track, both underground and elevated, linking four of the five boroughs from the Bronx neighborhood of Wakefield to the Queens neighborhood of Far Rockaway, a journey one can actually make with just one single transfer. Most of us have deeply personal connections to one particular line, one that links us to our homes and the places that mean the most to us. Rarely do we encounter something that we might describe as elegant or glamorous. In 1941, subway riders packed onto busy trains, most on their way to work, and were met with the charming smile of Ms. Mona Freeman. Meet Miss Subways of May 1941, selected by John Robert Powers, famous beauty authority. Attending high school, vivacious Mona Freeman writes for her school paper and lives in Pelham. Her ambition is to be a top-notch illustrator. She's interested in school dramatics. Broadway and Hollywood, please note, each month, Mr. Powers selects Miss Subways from among those who use the greatest transportation system in the world. Look around this car. Next month's selection may be riding with you. Dozens of women and high school girls were named Miss Subways between the years 1941 and 1976. What was this peculiar contest? And what were the motivations for starting it in the first place? To start this investigation, of course, I needed to go underground and head to a collection that can fairly be called one of the great wonders of New York City, the New York Transit Museum in downtown Brooklyn, located in a decommissioned subway station which had originally opened in 1936. I met curator Jody Shapiro upstairs amid the central collection of old turnstiles, signs, and other transportation artifacts. Then we headed to this extraordinary collection of subway cars, representing the entire history of the New York subway system. I honestly cannot think of a better place to be on a Friday. I've always found this to be such a, a joyous place where you can like, basically walk and pretend you're a commuter over like a hundred years of history. <laughs> uh, well, more than a hundred years, yeah. Uh, the oldest car that we have here on the platform is from 1904, and it's wooden. It would not be allowed to ride through the tunnels today. <laughs> but we do take it out once a year or try to, mm -hmm. so people can ride on it uh, and experience what it was like oh, way good, back yeah. when. The Transit Museum celebrates more than just subways, tracing the entire history of public transit in New York City. Horse cars, omnibuses, elevated trains, cable cars, trolleys, and of course, motorized buses. But none transformed the city quite like the subway, which linked together Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx with a vast underground network of train tunnels, which linked up with pre-existing elevated trains. 
The idea for a municipal subway was born alongside the idea of a consolidated New York and the formation of the five boroughs, officially chartered on January 1st, 1898. But such a system would have been too vast and too expensive for New York to operate at that particular moment. The city owned the subway, but leased operation of the subway system to two private companies. Originally, the IRT and the BRT, later the BMT. Then, in 1932, the city itself got into the game with its own independent line. So, we had three subway operators, and they operated independently until the year 1940. And believe it or not, you can still see evidence of these older companies in station names and original architecture. In 1940, when unification happened, what it meant for most customers, they, it didn't really mean much to them, mm-hmm. uh, except that now it was a little bit easier for them to transfer to different subway lines with a transfer fare. Sure. Mm-hmm. Basically, it meant that New York City now controlled and operated the Interborough Rapid Transit System, the IRT, mm-hmm. which are today's numbered lines. Okay. The BMT, was the, which is the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Company, which ran in Brooklyn and Queens, obviously, and, and the independent subway system, which is the IND, yeah. which the city itself had started several years before. And the BMT and the IND systems are now what are today's lettered lines. And the key thing to remember is one of the reasons why New York had three separate systems to begin with is because they were built by three separate companies. (laughs) Private companies, privately owned. Privately owned. It was not working as well as it should have. Mm -hmm. Um, So by the city unifying the subway system, there were things that they could do that couldn't be done prior. Some restrictive things were no longer restrictive because they were a city agency. Mm -hmm. With a unified line, one opportunity that presented itself was a unified advertising plan on subway cars. Take any train today and you'll be inundated with ads for food delivery apps, health insurance, sometimes the entire car is wrapped in colorful subway advertising. Well, you've never been able to escape them. And in fact, ads were prominently featured on streetcars and elevated trains since the Gilded Age. The trains in the Transit Museum collection are festooned with the kinds of ads that you would have seen in those cars back in their day making the display as much a history of American consumption habits as it is of transportation. You know, there's there's only so many ads of for cod liver oil and, and canned <laughs> foods that you can yeah. really look Cigarettes. at. Cigarettes. Yeah, lots of cigarette ads, lots of alcohol ads, because cigarette, you know, sin raises a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so, and here at the museum, in all of our subway cars, we have an arrangement of ads in every subway car that is Mm -hmm. uh, representative of what a rider would see in that car during its service life. You also begin to see what amounted to house ads or in-house news posters, first beginning on the IRT lines in 1918. Fake newspapers called the Elevated Express for the IRT's above-ground trains and the Subway Sun 
for its underground lines. I guess we would call them a news poster. So many of the subjects were etiquette, you know, how to behave, how to sit, not cross-legged, how to not crowd the doors, things that are still issues on the subway today. You know, you could take a look around the car and just see that uh, the graphic statement of these in here is very simple. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, please don't push and you can take the subway to Coney Island. The earlier ones that were very text-heavy were more informative about, like, what your fare was being spent on Mm -hmm. and how many cars there were in the system and how many new cars were coming into Mm -hmm. the system. They also offered history lessons and even presented inspirational quotes. In 1925, the Subway Sun ran such a quote from James Weldon Johnson, the secretary of the NAACP, recognizing the growing number of commuters from the burgeoning neighborhood of Harlem. Quote, I use the Interborough because it enables me to spend 15 minutes longer over my breakfast table uptown and 15 minutes longer at my desk downtown without being late, going or coming. By 1940 then, with a unified train system with billions of fares being plucked down by a growing number of diverse commuters, traveling to and from a diverse number of living situations, crowding cars and stations. With all this change, of course, people once again decried the conditions of the subway. Now, believe it or not, people were still paying only five cents at this time, and the system needed money. Those subway ads became even more important, and what better way to maximize their effectiveness than to surround all of those ads with pretty faces. So the Miss Subways campaign was the brainchild of the New York Subways Advertising Company, who were one of the companies that made ad campaigns specifically for the subway. And mm-hmm. so their cards were sized properly to fit inside the cars, and they, you know, the artwork was custom-made to fit those sizes, focusing on campaigns that targeted subway riders in particular. Mm-hmm. And they started it as a way to make people more aware of their models, and the products that those models were selling through the New York Subway's (laughs) advertising company. So it was very self-serving on their part. The Miss Subway's contest, which debuted in 1941, was not a pageant with evening gowns and sashes and runways, but it did have one thing in common with the Miss America pageant, which debuted on the Atlantic City boardwalk on September 8th, 1921. There she is. Miss America was initially designed not strictly to celebrate beauty, but to draw attention to Atlantic City and its world-famous boardwalk. For decades, newspapers across the country had competitions involving women sending in photographs to win a prize. All, of course, to sell newspapers. And so Miss Subways was designed to capture the eye of commuters who might gloss over a row of regular advertisements for Coca-Cola or Campbell's Soup. Now, every month, you could see a pretty face, an honored young woman, a New Yorker. And who would choose that person every single month? The advertising company turned to one of New York's great judges of pretty faces. Into the picture here steps John Robert Powers. The American woman has long occupied a position 
which inspires envy of the women of the world. It stands to reason that as the women go, so goes the nation. If they are drab and uninteresting, if they are unsure of themselves and unlovely, if they lack imagination and fail to develop her own potentialities, we stand a good chance of being surrounded by just such uninspiring qualities. In the brief span of a lifetime, we have seen the change from the buxom Gibson girl to the Ziegfeld glamour girl, and more recently to what has come to be called the powers girl, the natural girl, surely the most beautiful woman in the world, unquote. That is the foreword to the book The Powers Girl, written in 1941, the same year as the debut of the Miss Subways contest, written by John Robert Powers, the modeling agent mogul who helped to define the appearance of the archetypal woman in mainstream media during the mid-20th century. Powers opened the first modeling agency in 1923, near the start of a revolution in printed media when magazines and newspapers began to transition from illustrations to photography. New York became the capital of advertising with ad agencies beginning to assemble in midtown Manhattan on Madison Avenue. Advertising was aimed at women who did much of the everyday shopping in American households, This meant employing more and more women as models, picture-perfect stand-ins for the customer, glowing with a relatable, approachable beauty as she marveled over cleaning supplies and frozen foods. As author Paulina Bren wrote in her book, The Barbizon, The Hotel That Set Women Free, quote, The Powers Agency specialized in what was considered the typical Midwestern look, tall, blonde, and curvy and a quarter of the agency's earnings came from their models posing for mail-order catalogs such as Sears Roebuck. Because blonde and cute was the look that Powers was after, the models looked so startlingly alike that New York gossip columnists abandoned trying to identify them and simply took to writing, quote, he was seen out with a Powers model, unquote. By 1943, his influence had even inspired a Hollywood film, naturally called the Powers Girl. Wait a minute, Miss Evans. Did you say Powers Girl? Do you want to become a Powers Girl? Why, more than anything. Well, my dear young lady, why didn't you say that in the first place? John Powers happens to be one of my nearest and dearest friends. He is? Johnsy boy, Powersy? (laughs) Why, one little phone call, my dear, and you're in. But do you really know him that well? I know him better than that. You will not only be a Powers Girl, you will be the Powers Girl. Oh, Mr. Hendricks. Nobody thought it particularly unusual that Powers was the only person selecting winners of the Miss Subways contest. He hired out models for all sorts of advertising campaigns, and and that's what this was, after all. His first choice was a 14-year-old teenager named Mona Freeman from Pelham, New York. She had never actually ridden the subway before, a fact obviously withheld from the inaugural Miss Subway's posters, which lined thousands of subway cars in May of 1941. Now, despite some questions of her actual qualifications as a subway rider, Freeman went on to a minor career as a film actress, signing a movie contract with Howard Hughes and appearing in such films as The Heiress, Black Beauty, and the 1952 melodrama Flesh and Fury, 
with Tony Curtis. I'll be right there, Claire. Maybe I shouldn't have come. Oh, no, no, Paul, it's all right. It's just Mother's annual shindig for the sailor's home. Oh, it's just all these people. I, I, I could come back some other time. Oh, no, Paul, I want you to stay, please. Oh, Paul, I just can't believe it. But Powers couldn't simply pull from his agency's roster of fresh-faced young models. As the Miss Subway's pageant became more popular, it had to reflect the actual ridership of the New York City subway. Miss Subway's becomes a New Yorker after this. If you like our show, then we think you'll love the New York Historical Society's podcast, For the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein, interviewing America's foremost historians and creative thinkers on a wide range of American history topics. Long before the first battle of the American Revolution, the conflict between loyalists and patriots swept through all facets of American society, with colonists, Native Americans, and the enslaved all forced to choose a side. In Our First Civil War, Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution, H.W. Brands examines whether this would constitute America's first civil war before the revolution had even been won. In Hanoi's War, an international history of the war for peace in Vietnam, you will visit the new historical terrain of the Vietnam War, with award-winning historian and former war refugee, Lian Hang Tina Nguyen. She will draw on her personal and professional journey, researching that war to offer new insights for its significance today. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, 
a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Back at the Miss Subways contest on Coney Island, the other judges and I were having a bit of a meltdown. We saw some extraordinary contestants, a collection of poets, musicians, artists, comedians. One performer had Dr. Octopus arms, for instance. We had to narrow this group of contestants down to five, but what was it that we were looking for? A former Miss Subways named Lisa Levy was also a judge and tallying our choices. And I must admit, we probably looked very perplexed, the rest of us, wondering what our standards of judgment were. Lisa replied, we're looking for somebody who personifies the essence of the subways. In 2023, what could that mean? On the last week of 1944, over two and a half years since the start of the Miss Subways contest, the musical On the Town debuted at the Adelphi Theater with music by Leonard Bernstein, with book and lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Five years later, it was turned into a smash Hollywood film starring Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and as the movie's Miss Subways, named Miss Turnstiles, the former Rockette turned movie star, Vera Ellen. She, she's wonderful. A celebrity. Yeah. What a girl. She can do everything. Look what it says. Meet lovely Ivy Smith. Every month, some lucky little New York miss is chosen from the thousands of girls who ride the subways to be Miss Turnstiles. She's got to be brilliant, beautiful, Talented. Just an average girl. This month, the fortunate lassie is Miss Ivy Smith. Yes, you! Three sailors in New York for 24 hours find themselves caught up in the madness and glamour of the city, with Kelly's character smitten with the famous woman on the poster. This is more or less what happened with the women chosen to be Miss Subways during the 1940s. In 1942, James Daniels of the News and Observer wrote, quote, It is safe to say that the pretty faces of Miss America are seen by fewer people than that of New York's Miss Subways. 
Despite the fact that the tiny sip of wine of fame lasts only a month, there is hardly a New York girl who wouldn't like to be Miss Subway's. Young women became instant local celebrities, and many were actually pursued by lovelorn men. A Waldorf Astoria manicurist named Ruth Erickson, Miss Subway's December 42, collected 268 written proposals of marriage and received orchids every day for six months. But the winners became more than mere pinup girls. Miss Subway's soon became aspirational for many women. Six months after the creation of the contest, the U.S. military base in Pearl Harbor was attacked by Japanese forces, and America entered World War II. Ridership on the New York subway system changed overnight, with thousands more women beginning to take the train to work. As Jody explained to me over at the Transit Museum. Yeah, 1941, the first year of Miss Subways, and it's also during wartime. So these ads begin appearing on the subway at a time when women are entering the workforce in droves, Mm -hmm. uh, many of them for the first time, many of them people who probably never thought they would either have to or want to have a job. Mm -hmm. So here's this ad campaign of, quote unquote, the girl next door that they're seeing. In a way, Miss Subways became a sort of second cousin to the woman at the center of another ad campaign, Rosie the Riveter, featured in a 1943 poster with the words, we can do it. Most of the women who became Miss Subways in the 1940s were career women, and descriptions seemed to balance the traditional roles presented to women in this period with higher professional ambitions and even the occasional streak of independence. Elaine Cousins, March 1942, sells defense bonds in her spare time. Mary Ratchek, August 1944, is studying to be an interpreter. Cecile Woodley, November 1942, is an assistant buyer in a Manhattan department store. Eileen Henry, March 1943, wants to be a radio director. Quote, you'll find her in Madison Square Garden at almost every basketball game. Unquote. Aspirational details are balanced with random and even mundane bits of trivia. Edna Thompson, January 43, likes to ski, motorcycle, and study faces. Rose Ellen Cameron, April of 1943, plays the bass fiddle, the cello, and the glockenspiel. Joan Cashman, February 1944, loves cold weather and bowling. But collectively, these presented a richer presentation of the regular lives of women than most movies, and would even continue this way as women began seeing themselves in the late 1940s within the new medium of television. You know, mixed in with that occasionally cringy language, there were women, you know, there was a woman in 1942, Margaret McAuliffe, who wanted to be a doctor, and it was there on her poster. And I can't imagine how strange and wonderful that must have been for some women who sat across from that ad and maybe it never occurred to them that they could be a doctor. Powers continued to select all the Miss Subways, although now he had immense pressure from the public. Quoting from the Barnard Bulletin, 1942, Powers receives thousands of letters a week 
containing nominations. There have been petitions from Hunter and New York University, and one petition from the neighborhood of Washington Heights signed by 1,000 people. Sometimes he actually finds a prospective Miss Subways on a train, unquote. Eventually, prospective candidates were encouraged to mail in headshots to Powers Park Avenue office. Soon, mailboxes were stuffed with photographs. In 1959, one of those photographs belonged to a Queens teenager named Ellen Hart. I was a local beauty. I lived on 168th and Union Turnpike in Queens, and I was Miss Jamaica High. They picked me as the prettiest girl in Jamaica High in 1959 when I graduated. Just before I graduated, I entered the Miss Subway contest. As everyone was rooting for me and told me that I should do it. I entered my picture. I sent it to Subway Advertising. John Robert Powers was the modeling agency that sponsored it at the time. And I became Miss Subway March and April 1959, simply by sending my picture in and having the interview with him. I guess I impressed him enough that he used me for those two months, so it was really exciting. Today, Ellen Hart Sturm is one of the most prominent of the former Miss Subways, but her crowning moment here echoes dozens of others. A young woman suddenly the Queen of New York for one beautiful fleeting moment. I went with my mother from Queens into Manhattan on the subways and, of course, recognized that my poster was all over in every car, and people did recognize me, but maybe I was, you know, obtrusive, is that the word, or showed that I was missed up by pointing to it, but at any rate, I was, you know, I was thrilled. I thought this was a career job, you know, and we would go into this, in, you know, to Manhattan with gloves, dressed up at the time, nothing like you see today. You know, it was a whole event going into Manhattan, Queens, and when you're 17. So it was a thrill, you know, just to see yourself. And it's like on the town when they show Miss Turnstile. The guys, the soldiers are looking at her, and that's a takeoff on the Miss Subway. Same feeling. Nineteen forty six was a high watermark for the New York subway system, with over two billion fares paid that year. I said billion. That's billion. As the contest neared the 1950s, it became quite apparent that people were taking Miss Subways seriously as a celebration of New York women. As a result, the constant parade of Powers' blonde, Midwestern-looking beauties did not seem in keeping at all with the actual New York women riding the subway. In particular, New York was already in the midst of a population change, an extraordinary migration of black Southerners fleeing the South's hardened Jim Crow culture and settling in New York neighborhoods like Harlem. New York, though, was not without racism, of course. In the 1940s and 50s, restaurants and hotels sometimes treated black and Jewish customers as second rate, and most neighborhoods remained segregated. But the New York subway, however, it was public. It was used by everyone. It was where cloistered New Yorkers most likely saw people that were different than them. And this is true to this day, actually. It's where the stunning diversity of the city is at its most pronounced. 
if people were really going to take this Miss Subway's contest seriously then, it needed to reflect the actual women who rode the subway. Columnists for prominent African-American newspapers led the charge for a black Miss Subways as early as 1942. Said a New York Amsterdam news columnist, quote, Harlem's young female set is mad as hell about the implied insult to them in the subway cars, unquote. In 1944, the subway advertising president released a statement saying that there was no discrimination whatsoever and that women of all types were free to send in their photos. However, it took many years for the company to back up that claim. Finally, in April of 1948, commuters met their first black Miss Subways, Thelma Porter psychology student at Brooklyn College and part-time nurse receptionist in a dentist office. By this point, the selection process had become quite arduous. According to the New York Daily News, Porter was chosen via a rigorous interview process. Quote, the field was narrowed down to eight, graded highest on look and personality. The eight were photographed and the pictures given to Powers for final judging. A year later came the first Asian-American winner, Helen Lee, November 49, favorite pastime, interior decorating, parentheses, modern. Soon there were Hispanic women, Jewish women, Italian-American women, even women who were newly arrived immigrants, such as November 1952's winner, Luli Kula from Estonia, quote, only three years in the U.S. and with an intriguing accent. There were even several married winners. Let's not go crazy, though. Women were still thin and conventionally attractive. You know, this was an advertising campaign, after all. But throwing open the contest to a more diverse field of women helped cement its reputation as something very specifically homegrown, as opposed to Ms. America or other types of pageantry, which moved glacially towards the acceptance of different types. For instance, while Bronx-born Bess Meyerson became the first Jewish winner of the Miss America pageant in 1945, she would later work for New York mayors John Lindsay and Ed Koch, it would take that pageant four more decades to crown its first black winner and maybe the greatest winner of any beauty pageant of all time. And our new Miss America is Vanessa Williams, Miss Miss Subways became so open to public opinion, in fact, that by the 1960s, John Robert Powers had stepped aside, and the winners were selected by public vote via postcard. An advertising spokesman said of the contest in 1971, prettiness per se is passe. It's personality and interest pursuits that count. By the early 1970s, the contest had changed. But so had the New York City subway system. We'll get to the end of the line of the former Miss Subways contest and to the crowning of the new Miss Subways after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Just off Times Square on 51st Street, there sits the replica of a one-train New York City subway car in the style of the old Redbird, a model that was in use during the 1950s and 60s. But this is a diner. It's Ellen's Stardust Diner in the flamboyant mode of a retro 1950s diner with one very big difference. The staff all happen to be exceptionally talented musical performers. The future stars of the Broadway stage, they belt out songs between serving food. One performer captivated the crowd of mostly tourists with a rendition of a Harry Styles song before jumping down and taking my order. I I can hardly do either of those things, much less both at the same time. But I wasn't here to witness stars in training. I had actually come to visit the mezzanine which has become a museum to the Miss Subway's program, the walls adorned with old subway posters. You see, the Ellen of Ellen's Stardust Diner, that's Ellen Hart Sturm, the Miss Subway's of 1959. We first opened on 56th Street and 6th Avenue, and then we moved down to 51st and Broadway, and at that time, We decided to have singing waiters because I was interested in singing. I sang the national anthem at the Ranger Nick Games. That was my claim to fame. And um, decided to put up the singing waiters there. In a few ways, the 1970s were actually pretty good for subway riders. Down at the Transit Museum, Jody Shapiro took me to an actual Redbird car to show me some of the subway's upgrades during this period. In the 1970s, you could ride on an air-conditioned subway car if you were riding on the correct subway line. Because with the introduction of the R42, which was 1969, those were the first subway cars to have factory-installed air conditioning, and they started out on the N line, I believe. So yeah, so if you were lucky and you lived in the B Division territory, you might get an air-conditioned subway car. Uh, (laughs) But it was not looking like you could so easily upgrade the Ms. Subway's contest, now lingering in an enlightened age of women's liberation by the 1970s. I know that they had tried to get the name changed to Ms. Subway's at one point. Seeing an ad like of this woman talking about how she likes to cook spaghetti or, or things like that might just be infuriating to somebody, especially somebody who's young and idealistic, who's like, I am a woman in a man's world, and these ads are encouraging people to think of us as these, you know, fantasy objects. They're not really suited for the Mary Tyler Moore era, essentially. Definitely not. (laughs) 
there was a much bigger problem, of course. New York City in the 1970s was suffering through a financial crisis, and one that would not so easily be solved by a bunch of eye-catching ads. There's you know, austerity measures, and uh, so ridership is down. The state of the system is not in good repair because of these fiscal crises Mm -hmm. and a lot of other factors leading up to it. You know, just the fact that a lot of the subway cars at that time were very old. There had been a car replacement program that had started in the 60s that was still ongoing. One of the things that I, I, I like to point out to people is that transit is cyclical, just like history is cyclical, everything is cyclical. So in the 1970s, it just so happened that our transit system was at the bottom end of the cycle and ready to go up again. Ultimately, in the end, the whole idea of Miss Subways might have just simply run its course. Quoting from Marvin Schwartz, the former president of the advertising company, The interest just waned. People got so used to it that it became part of the scenery. And so on the last day of 1976, the New York Daily News ran the contest's obituary. The talented New Yorker known as Miss Subways has made her last run. The current Miss Subways, Heidi Hafner, will in all probability be the last. Perhaps it was all for the best, Miss Subways never really seemed to fit in with her fellow writers anyway. She was always smiling. Most New Yorkers forgot about Miss Subways, but Ellen Hart Sturm didn't. Now, in the 1980s, Ellen opened a cafe right across the street from New York City Hall. In the 1980s, actually, 270 Broadway, I opened Ellen's Cafe, and all the local politicians came in. We had uh, Mayor Koch. He would come in for his birthday and we would give him as many pies as his birthday, his favorite charity, City Harvest. And then David Dingens would come in and we had a lot of local celebrity politicians coming in. And it was a great time. And in 1983, we started the Miss Subway reunions. And we got a lot of press at the time. New York Times, I can't, we've got all the newspapers being interested in our first reunion, and it took off from there. And then when Ellen opened her Stardust Diner in the Times Square area, the reunions were then hosted there. And that's how everything evolved. And every so often we have a reunion for Miss Subway. In the case of when on the town, they revived on the town on Broadway, Betty Compton came in with Adolph Green, and we did a whole thing around Miss Subway, and they gave us free tickets to the show. These reunions allowed women of many different backgrounds to come together and bond over this very tiny but very significant thing that they all had in common. I think we were all similar. Women connect, you know that. And the only thing is, you know, we had different age group differences. The eras were a little different. Somebody was knitting Argyle socks for her soldier boyfriend that was coming back from the army, you know, one era and then somebody else was planning to go on to college, another era, and somebody was a secretary, stewardesses, you know, things like that. In the media, Miss Subways would pop up 
now and then, the, the purest object of nostalgia, so drenched in a charming corniness that felt at odds with many people's feelings for the subway, which had reached its absolute nadir during the 1980s, associated with graffiti and crime. What were these women smiling about? By the new century, however, there seemed to be a new appreciation for the contest. Inspired by news reports of Ellen's Stardust reunions, and perhaps by an upswing in subway improvements. In 2004, the transit system brought Miss Subways back, a revival that didn't really catch on. But it eventually inspired photographer Fiona Gardner to track down as many surviving Miss Subways contestants as she could find for a project which eventually became the book Meet Miss Subways, New York's Beauty Queens 1941 to 1976, created with author Amy Zimmer and Kathy Pease. Putting Miss Subways in the context of the many interesting women who once wore the title revived interest in it, and that same year, the New York Transit Museum mounted an exhibition tied to the book. It also inspired Dave Herman, the founder of the City Reliquary. Now, some of you may remember a few months ago, I paid a visit to the City Reliquary, which is located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Back in January, when I visited the World's Fair treasures of Kyle Supley, which are displayed at this curious museum. Nostalgia for the local and unusual is big at the City Reliquary, so Gardner's project sparked Herman's imagination. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to be introduced to Fiona Gardner, who is a photographer that had done a lot of research and tracked down many of the original Miss Subway's contestants and had photographed them in their current lives. And she kind of gave them that pageantry moment that they lacked from the original context of the Miss Subway's, which was just in poster form on the subways. Uh, in some ways, that was kind of even better, I think, in terms of what a beauty pageant quote uh, would be. But she still felt that they earned that sash that they never gotten. The exhibit that we hosted here showed her photography of the Miss Subways in their current lives along with their original posters. And we thought we should take that sash moment and the next level and reintroduce a new form of the actual pageant with the, the stage presence and the runway and the moment of the talent show and the crowning with the transit tiara. But what would it mean to bring Miss Subways back? Well, sure. I think some of our motivation was was a positive sense that the the first version of Miss Subways was progressive for its time frame, but we could look at it critically as well. So we wanted to keep some of the positive sense of it, the fact that it was one of the first uh, interracial pageants of its kind, but also give a new sense of how we think of beauty in today's society and what is even the term Miss. You know, uh, Miss doesn't necessarily have to be gender specific at this point. Um, so we wanted to sort to free that up and allow people of any gender identity to feel that sense of title, Miss Subways, that they could own that as well. And so in 2017, the City Reliquary revived the Miss Subways contest, now in a more artsy Brooklyn context, and as a pure pageant event, largely based on some kind of talent being involved, complete with sashes, tiaras, celebrity judges, and notably not associated with the MTA or any major advertising agency. The winner of this new rebooted pageant was a Brooklyn performance artist named Lisa Levy. It's time a post-menopausal woman won Miss Subways, she proclaimed to the New York Post.
flash forward now to 2023, and we're back to the pageant that started the show and to the judges' table for the Miss Subway's pageant 2023 with New York Nico, Reverend Jen Miller, Maxine the Fluffy Corgi, her owner Brian did most of the deliberation I should reveal, and Lisa Levy, Miss Subway's 2017. What did all this mean now in 2023? In a post-pandemic world, with a subway picking itself up, but facing some serious problems. In the end, we chose the contestant who was, just simply speaking, the most committed to the bit. The living embodiment of the number seven train. The most misunderstood subway line of all, which goes from Hudson Yards in Manhattan to Flushing, Queens. The winner was named Harmony. And her costume and even her hair matched the color of the line, all in purple. A week after we crowned Harmony the winner of Miss Subways, I took the F train, of course, to Roosevelt Island. And I sat down with her as we looked out at the Queensboro Bridge. All right, I want to begin by just asking you to describe your act. What exactly you did and what inspired you to do that? I did a flow arts performance where it incorporated a hula hoop and flow fans. So I wanted to incorporate that performance, but it didn't feel like enough to represent the seven train. (laughs) So I also incorporated in a mashup of music that I created where... Uh, it really, I feel, captured the spirit of the seven train mm-hmm. and the chaos and the jokes. So tell me, which one of these is your favorite? The seven train. Seven. Seven. Seven? Yes! Excuse me. So you represented the yes. seven train. Can you explain why you chose the seven train? What your particular affection is for the seven train oh yes i've been on the seven train for seven years now Uh it is absolutely my train Uh uh every you know fingers crossed everywhere i live in new york will just be at different points on the seven train (laughs) (laughs) i've always had a deep affinity for it i wrote all of my jokes while on the seven train in the week leading up to the event i think one of my big punchlines was much like the seven train on most weekends you won't find me running into Manhattan. Where's more power? Miss America or Miss USA? It's neither. It's Miss What the title of Miss Subways means to you, but then what can it mean beyond this year, right? What is it for you personally and then like what could be the future? I mean you're not gonna be running it, but like what is what could it be? I'm really excited for the future of Miss Subways. I think it has a lot of really great historical significance of representing the everyday train rider. Mm -hmm. And I think it can really do that again. When I went into this competition, I was planning on representing the seven train all year. And I'm very excited (laughs) that now I I get to represent all of the trains. (laughs) Oh, yes. Not just all all of the numbers, but all of the letters. I know.
My thanks to all the guests who joined me on today's show. A big thanks, first of all, to Ellen Hartsturm. Check out that amazing collection upstairs at Ellen's Stardust Diner and stay for the extraordinary talent. And tip well and send them all good wishes on their journey to the Broadway stage. My thanks also to Dave Herman from the City Reliquary and the reigning Miss Subways, Harmony Hardcore. On top of a fabulous new exhibition at the City Reliquary on the mid-century nightclub, The Latin Quarter, they also have their own podcast called Undiscarded Stories of New York, a show that I think most of you will like, so check that one out. Finally, of course, my sincerest thanks to Jody Shapiro and everyone over at the New York Transit Museum. Go down and spend an afternoon wandering from car to car, looking at old ads, generally speaking, being transported into the past. For more information, go to their website, nytransitmuseum.org. And then visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have lots of pictures from my many adventures that I took on this show. I just went all over the place on this one. On this week's Patreon-exclusive show that Tom and I produce called Side Streets, you'll actually hear an interview with my fellow Miss Subway's judge, New York Nico, a.k.a. Nicholas Heller, one of the kings of New York social media, I must say, capturing the most fascinating aspects of New York street life. You can find that episode of Side Streets next week at patreon.com slash Boys. Carl Raymond over at the Gilded Gentleman has excellent new shows for you to check out as well, including this month a new two-parter on Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde. Check those out at the Gilded Gentleman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tom will be back again for another brand new show in two weeks. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.